Okay, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Jude. Okay, there was a rumor going around that I was just off playing. Got I'm here to straighten out the slander. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Boston with Mike and Meredith and the team there, and that was a, a good, profitable time. And, and then last week, I was at Living Faith Lee Summit. Every year in the fall, early fall, Dan has me come out uh, to the church there. And so, praise the Lord. We'll have to get Pastor Dan out one of these times. But um, this morning, we're going we're gonna to keep going in the book of Jude. And so, let's pray. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And Lord, we want to ask that, Lord, we not just be hearers of your word. We don't want to just give mental assent and agree with its truth only. We want to receive it. We want to apply it. And so, Lord, I'm asking that today you give us eyes to see. Lord, help us to, to see dispensationally how to apply your truth. And, and in that, Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, God, we're trusting that the excuses, that the enemy, his lies, they'd all be bound and that uh, the Holy Spirit would be poured out in conviction over sin and over the efficacy of the, the finished work of Christ at Calvary. And for believers, Lord, that are just going through the motions, really effectively living like, um, like frauds, Lord, they have a form, they're playing, but... There's no reality. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of repentance and rededication of their lives to be a part of a, a soul-winning, disciple-making, equipping ministry that will have fruit at the judgment seat. Lord, I'm asking that you would do what only you can do. Have your way with us as your people for your glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Okay, in the book of Jude, what we're seeing is, you know, how to deal with apostates, and that's kind of how Jude wraps the letter up uh, he, you know, verse 14, he says part of why Jesus is coming back, right, is to deal with these false teachers. And so what's the response of the believer? Well, we saw in verse 17, we're to remember the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to keep our focus in the word of God, and then we gotta recognize the reality of who we face. Verse 18, what did they tell us? They told us that there'd be days like these. How they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the spirit. So the point there is, is, you know, the word of God told you these false teachers were coming. Don't be surprised. You ought to actually be expecting this. Jude just keeps showing us how to identify false teachers and workers of sin. And so in verses 20 through 23, and here's where we wrapped up last time, he's showing what the believer's response must be. False teachers are telling lies on the Bible. Wicked workers are excusing wickedness scripturally. And what do we do? Well, we saw in verse 20, we gotta focus on building up the faith of believers. We don't want our brothers and sisters in Christ falling for deception and error. The only way that they're gonna be spared that is if they know the truth. So verse 20, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. So there's gotta be a focus on edification. And the point that we made is, Christian, particularly MBT member, this is critical. If you're not, if how you're living, you know, a lot of Christians, they think they're, they're doing good if they're just coming and holding down a pew on Sunday. 
We've got, gravity is installed in this church. We don't need your keister to keep the seat in place. We need keisters in motion, winning souls, making If what you're doing as a believer isn't helping us in some way to the, to the effect of winning souls, making disciples, and equipping people so that they'll be rejoicing at the judgment seat, then brother, sister, if you're not helping us to build up this church in the faith, you're outside the will of God, and I pray you see that. And then verse 20, it finishes with our need to respond in prayer, praying in the Holy Ghost. And the point that we saw there is that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to instruct our prayers. You're not gonna pray, right, if, you're not, if you don't have the prayer manual, right? It's the Word of God that shows us how we're to call out to the Lord in prayer. And, and so you can get all those messages on our sermon, sermon finder at mbtkc.org. All right, verse 21, this is where we pick up this morning. The third thing, we gotta know that God loves us. Verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Okay, so we gotta clear off some space here this morning. The way that this is phrased, keep yourself in the love of God, it's critical then that we see, get this down in your notes, the transitional nature of the book of Jude. Anytime you're in the general epistles, anytime you're in the books from Hebrews to Revelation, you must remember that those books have a dual application. Yes, there's a historical application to the early church. This also was a transitional time. You're going from the Old Testament economy of the law into the church age. Well, in the early days, after Christ's burial and resurrection, nobody understands the concept of the bride of Christ. Nobody understands the idea of the Gentile, um, you know, no Jew, no Gentile, the middle wall of partition. Like none of, none of these truths that God revealed to us through the Apostle Paul, they're not on the board yet. And so there's a transition from an Old Testament economy of the law into what we now know as the age of grace. Okay, so there's a historical application but there's also going to be an end times application. You have to remember that these books have a dual application. Yes, Jude applies today. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So from Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is profitable. There's teaching in here that should be applied to our lives. It's profitable for doctrine. A lot of people, a lot of dispensationists will go hyper in their approach and they will say things like, you can only take doctrine from Romans through Philemon because Romans through Philemon is written to, written by, given to the church, written by the Apostle Paul. And your Bible tells you very clearly that the Apostle Paul is the apostle to the, to the Gentiles. And so you can't take doctrine from the rest of your Bible. Well, that's just ludicrous. It's the Apostle Paul that says the whole book is profitable for doctrine. Okay, so what keeps us straight? What keeps me straight in the books of the law, in the prophets? What, keep me, what keeps me straight in the gospels? What keeps me straight in the general epistles? Well, it is the doctrine that's found in Romans through Philemon. Romans through Philemon, those are the Pauline epistles. He is the apostle to the Gentile bride of Christ. Absolutely, no question about that. That doctrine is what keeps me straight in the rest of the Bible. So now, as long as I've got my Pauline theology straight, I'm free to study all around the scripture and know how to apply it. 
people that teach that you can lose your salvation. They don't teach that from Romans through Philemon. They're gonna teach that in books like Matthew or Acts or Hebrew, transitional books. They'll make that case from the book of Revelation or even the book of James. But you're not gonna make that case from Romans to Philemon. When you're straight there, when you know what God said to the church, well now you're not gonna get tripped up in the rest of God's words. Is this making sense, brothers and sisters? This is, crit- this is critical. There's an application for the church, and in verses like this, what I want you to see this morning, there is a devotional application for us. And we know this is the case because in the age of grace, you don't keep yourself in the love of God. He keeps you there. That's how it works. Romans chapter eight, Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't keep yourself in the love of God when you're already stuck there. Hello, somebody. Is this making sense? The general epistles though, okay, Hebrews to Revelation, has a historical application for the church, much to say to the church, but no, not only is there a transitional transitional element to them, but there's also a tribulation application. Tribulation is your next blank. There's a tribulation application as well. There will be instruction for the tribulation believer in the general epistles. You see the same transitional issues in the Gospels as well, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, in, our, in our Bible school, we, we take a little time to make sure that the students understand that the Gospels, the four Gospels, are written to four different mindsets. The one that most closely aligns with the church age believer uh, is the Gospel of John. In contrast, the one that most, uh, most aligns with the Hebrew focused, reaching a Hebrew only audience is particularly the the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, you've got the Messiah coming, the King has come and he's absolutely making an offer of the kingdom of heaven, a literal physical rule and reign for a thousand years that's being offered to the Hebrew people where they will be elevated as the head of the nations, where Christ will rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Well. You read the Gospel of Matthew and you find out that they absolutely reject him as Messiah. This is why Matthew reads the way that it does. In the beginning, he gives the terms of the kingdom at the Sermon on the Mount. And you see the Beatitudes, eight Beatitudes. After the rejection, toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew, there's another Sermon on the Mount. And instead of eight blesseds, (laughs) instead of eight promises, there's eight woes. There's eight warnings. Why? Well, they've rejected their king, and nobody knows this at this point, but what's gonna happen is there's gonna be a parenthesis in terms of the prophetic promises unfolding. There's gonna be a time of the church age, and that is revealed through the Pauline epistles, right? It's revealed to all of the apostles, all of the prophets, but it's, it's the apostle Paul that God uses to codify it. So here in Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, you see this transitional application. Matthew 10, says, and again, he's speaking to a Jewish group of disciples about an end time event that has a Jewish focus. He says, ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But now watch this, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. 
Was that how you got saved? Because you endured to the end of the time of tribulation or you endured to the end of your life and so your good works absolutely smashed your bad works and so now God has to let you into heaven? Is that how it worked for you? No, child of God, you were born again, why? How did you receive the Spirit? Was it through your works or was it through the hearing of faith? Read Galatians, it's through, obviously it's through the hearing of faith. We're saved by God's grace through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Is everybody with me? Okay, so you don't get saved by enduring to the end. It doesn't work that way. But there's some people in Matthew 10, 22 that have to endure to the end to be saved. Again, Revelation chapter three, here we go, we're in the general epistles now. Revelation 3, 5, watch this. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Can your name, as a new, again, I'm speaking to believers, born again believers, can your name be blotted out of the book of life? If Jesus Christ is your life, if you have, if the promise of scripture is that you have eternal life in the person, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can lose that eternal life, it's not very eternal, is it? Oh, I got eternal life, but I didn't endure to the end. So I don't have eternal life anymore. Well, it wasn't very eternal to begin with, then was it? Is this making sense? I mean, if you're born again, you're a child of God. Nothing can change that, right? Read Romans chapter eight. You now have God's spirit himself indwelling you, and it's bearing witness with your spirit that you're God's child. And if you're God's child, this first inheritance is unconditional. His spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're his child. And if you're his child, you're an heir of God. Nothing can take that from you. Now the second inheritance is conditional. You're a joint heir with Christ, it goes on to say, if you suffer with Christ. Man, if you take up your cross and enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, you're a, you're a man or a woman of God on point, on mission, you're carrying your cross, you're enduring hardship as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're doing the work, guess what? You will rule and reign with Christ. If you get saved and you waste that salvation just living it only for yourself, building a life for yourself in this world, you will not rule and reign with Christ. Yeah, you'll, heaven is your home, God is your father, but you won't rule and reign with him. But your salvation, in the age of grace, that's unconditional once you've received the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another one, Revelation chapter two, verse seven. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Okay, for me, you know, if I'm gonna live for eternity because I'm saved, how's that gonna take place? Do I have to eat? the fruit of the tree of life. I've mentioned this from time to time. Can we just set an appointment? Again, I'm just speaking to save people. Let's just set an appointment. Let's say 10,000 years from now. Let's all get it down in our day planner. Let's go on vacation together. Uh, we'll go to Alpha Centauri and hang out on the beach, someplace like that. Well, how am I gonna get there? How am I gonna last for 10,000 years? How am I gonna last for 100,000? How am I gonna last for a trillion years? Am I gonna have to eat of the fruit of the tree of life? Now, I'm not saying that God's gonna hold out on me and not let me taste it, but do I have to have it for eternal life? No, Christ is my life. He's already the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. I don't need the tree of life. I've already got it. It's living in me. His name is Jesus. 
But he that overcometh, there's somebody in Revelation chapter two that has to overcome in order to eat of the tree of life. So why does the tribulation saint have to overcome to be saved? Keep a finger here in Jude and turn to Matthew chapter 24. Here it is. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 verse one says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, see not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not one, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Come with us, put it on your bucket list, all right? Save up some cash, come with us to Israel and we'll look at these stones on the Temple Mount. These are some big rocks, especially the lower you go. I mean, these are massive foundation stones. And Jesus is like, look at all this. Not one will be left on another. Incredible. There's gonna be great catastrophe that's gonna hit that city. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, now watch this, because this sets the stage for the entire chapter. Here's the question, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Okay, Matthew chapter 24, everything that's in that is answering that question. Give us the signs for your coming and, of the, and the end of the age, the end of the world. There's nothing, in Matthew chapter 24, nobody even knows what the church is. The idea of being born again, nobody understands that. That hasn't been revealed yet. Uh, John told Nicodemus, or G Jesus told Nicodemus he had to be born again, but the idea that you're born again as an eternal son of God, okay, this is, this is something that, that, that's not in, ma in the mass understanding of believers. The idea of the Gent Jew and Gentile becoming one new man. People don't get this, okay? And so we're talking about the end times. The answer that Jesus gives is to a bunch of Jewish believers about the issue in Israel at the end of the age, when the, when the day of the Lord is being ushered in. Watch this answer. Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And we've seen that in these last days, the, the people who, these false Christ, these people that say that they're Jesus, they're multiplying. I mean, man, it's like bad mold. Uh, they're, just, they're just growing. There'll ultimately be a big one, okay? We call him the, the Antichrist, okay? We'll look at him in just a second. Uh, so you'll have people, false Christ, deceiving many. Verse six, and you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. Man, Israel, they're nervous all around them. I mean, they are the last democracy in the Middle East and, and all around them, I mean, everybody wants that land and, 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 and look at what's going on in the world. Are we not seeing the multiplication of war? Well, all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Verse seven, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these things, right? All these are the beginning of sorrows. So this is clearly a tribulation passage, and he's giving a warning to Jewish people about the end times. So here it is, verse nine. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Uh, from, from the river to the sea, right? 
<laughs> What's the chant? It's gonna be free. Free of what? Free of Jews. Like that's the idea in the Middle East. They wanna, that J- Jerusalem truly is a burdensome stone to the nations. But look at what Jesus says. Then shall many be offended and betray one another, shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise, and many, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Is that how you get saved? By enduring to the end? And the gospel of the kingdom shall be, and this gospel of the kingdom, is that what we preach when we preach the gospel? Endure to the end and you can be saved. No, we, pe- we preach a gospel of grace. We're saved by God's grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. It's not your capacity to, to endure to the end that saves you. No, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And so then he gives this clue in verse 15. He says, when you see, right, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, and in Daniel chapter nine, basically what's explained is that the Antichrist demands worship of himself, and he defiles, he desecrates the temple. You actually read about that in Revelation chapter 13. What will happen, so in terms of the prophetic agenda, the next event on the prophetic biblical calendar is the rapture of the church. There's nothing that has to happen first before the rapture of the church, that's next. As a matter of fact, while we're in this meeting together, uh, the trumpet could sound and the dead in Christ will rise and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them and we'll meet the Lord in the air. And so I'm gonna say roughly, let's say 80% in this room just disappears. You're like, well, I guarantee you, there are people in this room that are playing at it. You've never seen the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You've never called on the Lord for mercy, for forgiveness and salvation. Uh, You think you're a good person and that's what's gonna get you to heaven. That won't cut it. When God's looking at people do they have eternal life or not? He's looking for people whose sin has been washed away by the shed blood of Christ at Calvary. He's looking for a bunch of people who have received his grace for salvation. So I think, you know, Midtown after the rapture of the church, Midtown Baptist Temple will go on. Be a bunch of lost people running it, but you know, anyway, there it is. And after the rapture of the church, sometime after that, shortly after that, there will be a peace treaty, a seven-year peace treaty that's between Israel and the nations of the world. And it will be authored by a very brilliant man, a charismatic world leader. In the middle of that peace treaty, he will be assassinated. Roman, uh, Revelation 13 says he's got a grievous head wound and, he, and it takes him out. And then he resurrects. The thing is, though, What the Bible reveals, he's actually now Satan incarnate, okay? The mystery of godliness is what? God became a man. Uh, The mystery of godliness reveals Christ in the flesh. Well, the mystery of iniquity is working to reveal Satan in the flesh, and that's what happens. The Antichrist resurrects, and then he proclaims himself Messiah, the promised ruler that is to come. And he goes into the temple of God as God, showing himself that he is God, and he demands worship to himself. This is what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. And what Jesus says is when you see it, run. Right? 
When you see it run, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Why? We'll look at Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 14. See, whenever the Antichrist defiles the temple, he's demanding that the whole world worships him as the living God. Isn't that the spirit of Satan? Isn't that his goal? Is to stand in the place of God as God, showing himself that he is God? Read Isaiah 14. You know, I will be like the Most High. He gets worship, I get worship. That's what he wants. Well, the Antichrist, Satan in the flesh, demands worship of himself. As a matter of fact, his false prophet develops this image in tribute to the beast. He has the power to give life to the beast. So some unholy demonic mashup of chat GPT and, and some, some demon from the pit and, and now, and then, you know, 5G, 6G, that's what you gotta have to keep tabs on the entire planet. And now you've got an image that can force everyone to worship. Look at this. He had power, Revelation 13, 15, to give light unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should, I mean, look at this, look at the wording. It's to give life to this image, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had a mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score and six. Man, isn't it interesting that it's like the globalists today, the world leaders of today, it's almost like they read Revelation chapter 13 and said, that is a great plan. Let's do that. They want to do away with cash. They don't want to have hard currency. They want it to be a digital currency that they can turn on or off. You're going to get with the program or you can't buy your Cheez-Its. Like that's where it's heading. You can't buy or sell unless you're in the program. I mean, that's the goal. They're working very hard to implement this strategy. And uh, Jesus called it, gave the data to the Apostle John 2,000 years ago. Okay, so what happens to the people that take that mark? We'll look at Revelation chapter 14. Verse nine says that the third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. See, the people that take the mark of the beast in these end times events, they don't endure to the end, they give in. They don't endure to the end. They took the Antichrist mark, they worshiped him, and so as a result, they're not saved. Do not pass, go, go straight to hell. That's what happens, there's no hope for them. Here's one more. Look at Revelation 21, verse seven. Jesus says, he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Is that how you got saved? By overcoming? Is that how you inherit? No, we're saved by God's grace through faith. That mark of the beast thing for a New Testament born again child of God, you don't, even, you don't even get a chance at it. 
God takes you out, you're off the stage long before it ever is implemented. You couldn't take the mark of the beast if you wanted to. Is this making sense? But, but during those events, there will be believers who will cave under the pressure. There will be believers who profess, I'm gonna do it Jesus' way. I'm a Bible believer. And the pressure's too great. They take the mark, they worship a false god, they don't endure to the, end, to the end and they go to hell. See, over and over, the admonition to the tribulation saint is to do self-examination. In other words, God is saying over and over again, check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's what he's saying. Because you can destroy yourself. Take the mark of the beast and be cut off from God forever. That's the warning. And so see, Jude's command here will directly, I mean it will absolutely directly apply to the tribulation saint during the time of Jacob's trouble. You keep yourself in the love of God. That's a key to enduring to the end during the end times. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. This is a time where God is now focused again on the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 30 verse seven. Alas, for that day, you know, a shorthand in your Bible for the day of the Lord. How does the, the, how does the day of the Lord come? Well, it doesn't start in day, it starts in night. It starts in tribulation, it starts in darkness, the Bible says. The day of the Lord, that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. This is another, this is another name for Daniel's 70th week or the time of tribulation. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, not the time of Kansas City's trouble. Jacob is another national name for the nation of Israel. It's the, it's the nation of Jacob, it's the nation of Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, but he, Israel, shall be saved out of it. Chapter 31, verse seven, for thus saith the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Jacob, the remnant of Israel. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter nine through 11. Romans 9, 27. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. He's quoting Isaiah 10, 22 there. And he concludes this message in verse 25 of Romans 11. He says, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. He's speaking to Gentile New Testament church believers. Don't get full of yourself. It's hard for Jewish people to come to Christ. Why? Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Once the, the unnatural branch is removed, God will graft the natural branch, the nation of Israel, back onto the root, back into Christ. And, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Okay, so here's how this mercy works. Here's how this, here's how this love is manifest for the tribulation believer. They see what's happening. A whole bunch of Bible thumpers disappeared. Again, remember we had a speculation Sunday. I think that the, the media campaign will be aliens took them. They're uh, re-educating them out on Alpha Centauri or feeding them to their space horses and 
you know, they got fangs and horns, you know, on Xylon 5 or whatever, whatever the message is. People would be like, oh, thank God I wasn't hanging out with those Bible thumpers. And uh, they'll be deceived, you know, and then other people will be like, wait a minute, what's going on here? <laughs> All of this is exactly matching the Bible, okay? So then there'll be a, a revival like the world has never seen during this time, okay? It'll be an uncountable number of people that literally endure to the end. They lose their life because they refuse to worship the mark of the beast. And so what happens is they see, for the Jewish people, this is the focus of scripture, they see the abomination of desolation. They're like, nope, I'm out of here. And they flee to the mountains of Judea. They don't take the mark of the beast. And God provides for them supernaturally. Let me give you some homework. You can read about this in Revelation chapter 12, particularly verses five and six. God himself, right, Jesus himself, as a picture of Moses, has his children back in the wilderness and he's providing for them supernaturally. And then when he returns to rule and reign, he delivers them once and for all. So again, what about us? New Testament, church age, age of grace believers. Well, check this out. Of all of the general epistles, the apostle John has the most to say that applies most directly to us. John's epistles apply, whether it's the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, these apply most directly in the church age doctrinally. Look at 1st John 5, verse four. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Were we born of God? Were you born again? Then automatically in that new birth, you're an overcomer. You don't have to endure to the end, you've already overcome because you've got Christ in your life. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? See again, in the age of grace, you don't keep yourself in the love of God, he keeps you there. Again, Romans eight, right? There is nothing that shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans eight, is the definitive passage that anchors this issue for the church. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So why are you gonna work to keep yourself in something that God has you trapped in? You're stuck there. Is everybody tracking with me? Praise the Lord, I'm stuck in the love of God. It's wonderful. That's Pauline doctrine for the church. Nothing can separate me. I know some people think, oh, you're a big deal. I can walk away anytime I want. No, not even you can keep you from the love of God. John chapter 10, verse 27, it says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall what? Never perish, never. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Uh, I remember when I was a young man, my, my charismatic friends, we'd talk about this passage and, and all of them would say, well, no man can pluck them out of, out of his hand, but you can walk away. Well, what are you, a frog? The text says no man, not even you. I mean, you may think you're a big man, but you're not a bigger man, that, nobody's greater than the Father. So I, I don't know, unless you're a frog, you can't walk away once God's got you, you are stuck there. Man, praise the Lord, I am trapped, I am stuck. God is my Father, I'm doomed to heaven. Man, how awesome is that? Praise the Lord. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And that includes you, man. 
I and my Father are one. If you are in Christ, you are in his love. Okay, so since I have the love of God, how do I apply Jude's admonition? Well, I think this is as close as you can get to keeping yourself in the love of God. Look at John chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus says, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Jesus says, you say you love me? Keep my commandments. You say you love me? Do what I tell you to do, right? The guy that has my commandments and keeps them, he's, he's live in scripture, well, that's who loves me. And he that loveth me, see, so it's a little different than being in the love of God, right? If you say you love God, you will submit to him. He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved in my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. So what I need to do as a believer, believer in what? Believer in the word, right? I need to keep his word. I need to abide in his word. What does that look like? Jesus said, abide me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No cut off branch ever bore and produce fruit. No more can ye except ye abide in me. So the key to all of this Start, I mean, it's right in the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was manifest in the flesh. And all that received him, to them God gave the power to be called his children, his sons. Okay, so if I'm going to abide in Christ, I'm going to abide in his, I'm gonna abide in his Word. That's the closest you can get as a New Testament believer to keeping yourself in the love of God. Nothing can separate the church age believer from the love of God, but if you reject God's word, you'll end up in bitterness or defilement, and you won't enjoy the love of God, will you? Because you'll be grieving the Holy Spirit, you'll be under conviction. God's a good father. He's very happy to turn you over his celestial knee and straighten you out, right? I mean, no chastening is pleasant. (laughs) Um, that's as close to cut off as the believer can get. All right, now here's another transitional phrase. We're seeing these key words, these key commands. We're to be building, we're to be keeping, now we're to be looking. And this is another transitional application phrase. And we wanna keep our focus on the end. And what we're gonna see is for us as, as Christians in the church age, the focus for us must always be the judgment seat of Christ. But look at how this is worded in verse 21, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Okay, so we're looking for God's mercy for salvation? Well, we're already believers, we already have it. How does the age of grace believer find something that they've already found? Right, I mean, how does salvation work for us? Ephesians two, verse four says, but God who is rich in mercy, what does that look like? How is his rich mercy manifest? For his great love wherewith he hath loved us. Okay, what does that look like? While we were his enemies, verse five, while we were yet, while we were dead in sins, he's made us alive, he's quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved and raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As humanity multiplies in eternity future, we will stand as a trophy of God's grace. See these guys over here? 
Christ's bride, you see those people? They were all my enemies. And I just gave them an offer, a free gift of salvation, and these people all took me up on it. We received the mercy of God for salvation, how? By God's grace through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, amen? So how are we looking for mercy when we've already found it? Okay, I mean, we have God's mercy. Okay, here's, here's how I think that this can apply today. We're not looking for mercy to eternal life, but we should be looking for mercy. And I think the key is here in the Pauline epistles. Look at 2 Timothy 1.16. Paul's prayer is the Lord give mercy unto the house of Anesiphorus. What, for salvation unto eternal life? See, the transitional believer, the, t- the tribulation saint, is going to be looking for mercy to eternal life, God's mercy unto eternal life. And what he'll do is endure to the end to be saved. That's how he'll find it. For the believer, they've already got mercy for salvation, but what we need is mercy for service. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Anesiphorus. Why? Well, because he lived right. He oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my, my chain. He entered into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings with me. So here, God's mercy for the believer is not related anymore to eternal life. We already have that. Well, what's it related to then? It was related to Onesiphorus' service, wasn't it? It was related to his Christian service. Does everybody see that? May the Lord grant mercy to him, to his house. Why? Because he entered into the fellowship with me. See, when we as believers, we keep ourselves in the love of God, there's a self-examination that takes place. There's an inward focus. Are we living out the word of God? But also looking for the mercy of God keeps an outward focus related to our future. Let me say it this way. A focus on the return of Christ and the coming judgment seat of Christ keeps everyone properly living so that we might be positioned to receive mercy at the judgment seat of Christ. I wanna receive reward, I wanna be rejoicing at the judgment seat, and so what do I need? I need God's mercy over my life so that I'll be fruitful. I need God's mercy over my life so that I don't waste it living it on myself. I need God's mercy over my life because I've entered into the fellowship of his sufferings and so now I get to rule and reign with him in his kingdom. Is this making sense? Man, that second inheritance is conditional. Your first one is unconditional. If you're saved, you're born again, you're a child of God, you're an heir of God, you've got a house in his home forever. Talk about, a, talk about lifestyles of the rich and famous. That's us, man. That's, that's, that's the rich people of this world trying to play us, pretend to be us. In my father's house are many mansions. He's going to prepare a place for us. So everybody gets that that's born again but only those that suffer with Christ will reign with him. Check out 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 1 Corinthians 3 says it this way. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day. What day? The day of the judgment seat of Christ. The day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If you live for yourself, building just a life for yourself in this world, you will suffer loss. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, if you're building on the foundation of Christ properly, 
The text says you shall receive a reward, right? But if you just built for yourself, for your temporal life, your temporal enjoyment, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. This is why we make the joke, you know, some people get into heaven smelling like hell. <laughs> There's no reward. There's no glory to God. God saved you, and then you ended up just wasting that, living it, on, living it for yourself. God's called you to matter. So many Christians today, man, my prayer is that every member of Midtown Baptist Temple will have rejoicing at the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because what you did mattered. You helped in a local church setting to win souls, to make disciples, to train people to see ministry multiply all over the world. And you did that from everything from um, uh, uh, changing diapers in the nursery to watching cars in the parking lot, cleaning the building. Uh, You did that with your service. You got trained, you got equipped in the Word of God to know how to use it in the lives of people. My prayer is that every member of MBT will have some point of praise, of rejoicing, because they see how God used them to matter for eternity. Now there's people there worshiping Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords because God used us. So many Christians today, they're depressed. Man, thank God for depression. It's like the dashboard light. When that trouble light comes on on your dashboard, what's it telling you? Something's really wrong, you need to go get this checked out. You may need some service. And if you ignore that, you may end up with a blown up engine on the side of the road. Right, that may not, that's, a, that's an alert, that's a warning. Thank God for depression. So many Christians today are depressed, why? Because you're trying to live like a lost person. You're born again and the Holy Spirit in your life is grieved because you're just wasting your life going through the motions as a Christian. You show up to church every once in a while, whenever you feel like it. Okay, God needs to be pleased with me because I gave him, what, the honor of your presence just sitting in a pew for for a minute? (laughs) Try this. Be obedient. Engage in the mission that your king has called you to. Let God use you in the lives of people and see how you feel then. Man, when you know that God's using you to make an eternal difference in the lives of people, forever, for all eternity, they'll never be the same. Whether it's they come to Christ or they get equipped and now they're fruitful in ministry and God used you to show them that, to teach them that, to bring them, to lead them to Christ. And for all of eternity, you can look at that person and say, they're there because God used me. When you know that God himself is looking over the banister of heaven and saying, there is my beloved son or there's my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. I I, I wonder how you'll feel then. Too many people calling themselves Christians, wasting their life just living for themselves. You say, you don't understand, Pastor. I've got a lot going on. There's a lot of problems going on in my life. I know what the Bible says, but no, your butt stinks, wipe it. That's the invitation, <laughs> wipe it. That just, that, those excuses stink. I know what the Bible says, but you gotta understand. No, you gotta understand. God wants to use you. You say, well, I'm stupid. Mm, can you read? Okay, maybe. Okay, we'll teach you to read. <laughs> I mean, that's what we gotta do, we'll teach you to read. You can know the word of God for yourself. You can live in its light. 
you can live in a way that's pleasing to God. At some point, be done with the excuses and say, God, you're worthy. Father, I come to you today in Jesus' name, and Lord, I'm crying out, I'm begging you for mercy, that there might be fruit, that there might be reward at the judgment seat. God, help us to be a people who shake ourselves, who quit ourselves like like mature believers. Men and women who take you at your word and say, okay, God, you can use me. And for those of us that the enemy is accusing and saying we're worthless, why would God ever use us? We'll just point that liar to 1 Corinthians chapter one and say that's what qualifies us for God to be glorified in and through us. It pleases you to use the weak and foolish things of this world. God, we stand qualified. Lord, have mercy on us. Make us a church that matters for your kingdom. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, God, I'm praying that they would find your mercy unto salvation, unto eternal life. God, help them to see that you burn against sin with righteous anger, but you're not willing that any would perish. And you proved it at Calvary. Lord, I ask that today would be the day of salvation. And I ask it all in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.